Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is episode six of the podcast, in which we will examine chapter five of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, back on this side of the door. And where we left off last week is with Edmund's intense moral crisis, the dilemma posed by the White Witch, in which he is offered enchanted Turkish delight. And uh, the entire moment there centers on revealing to the reader and revealing even in some ways to Edmund himself who and what he really is, that he is willing to betray his own family, willing even to the point of betraying his own life and uh, sacrificing his own existence to this addiction uh, to have more and more Turkish delight. You see how sin and evil has overridden Edmund's most basic human needs and has entirely addled his brain and his body where uh, his tastes and his desires have com- have been have become completely disoriented and rearranged and uh, it brings up the point again about uh, the right balance or order of our loves being one of the primary purposes of our lives that uh, we are creatures who need to have our loves and our affections ordered with God at the top, uh, the primary being, the center of our affections and everything else um, aligned accordingly, Edmund, by giving into the witch's spell and uh, succumbing to her temptations, has had his loves altered and marred and disfigured, and he is suffering the consequences of that. At the end of chapter four, it's referenced several times how awful Edmund appears, how awful he feels. And yet, uh, what Lewis says at the end of that chapter, uh, he says about Edmund, he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight again more than he wanted anything else. And that, for Lewis, is not just a a clever means of portraying or describing enticement and temptation, but rather a much more fundamental element to the entire Chronicles, uh, that what tends to be the innate nature of sin is that we want the wrong things or that we want the right things in the wrong order. Uh, But what he says there of of Edmund, that he wanted to taste that Turkish delight more than he wanted anything else is a primary problem. Now we move to chapter five, back on this side of the door. Lucy and Edmund stumble out of the wardrobe and seek to find Peter and Susan uh, to tell them what has happened. Uh, Lucy opens the chapter saying, Peter, Susan, it's all true. Edmund has seen it too. There is a country you can get to through the wardrobe. Edmund and I both got in. We met one another in there, in the wood. There's another element of of clever wording from Lewis where Lucy says, we met one another in the wood, which of course means that they reunited in, uh, in the Narnian forest at the end of Edmund's testing from the White Witch. But of course, the statement of meeting one another, that they saw one another perhaps for the first time as uh, Narnians, as humans who will, through time and through Aslan's guidance and through his will, redeem Narnia. And uh, so this statement that they met one another there is quite meaningful. But then we get another particular problem for Edmund that centers on the power of choice. So Edmund in The White Witch's Sledge is given the choice Uh, to taste the Turkish delight, to uh, pledge his allegiance to the White Witch. 
here he's facing a similar choice of where his allegiances lie. And it, it's much subtler than what the White Witch presented, but it's certainly no less potent. And here's when Lucy says to Edmund, go on, Edmund, tell them all about it. And the problem for Edmund here is that he could tell them where he has been and that he has seen Lucy in Narnia and that he has discovered the wood and it is all true. And he could suffer the embarrassment of owning up to his own conniving, sniveling ways. And that would be the right thing. Or he could uh, fabricate a lie and maintain that Lucy is making it all up, that she's committed herself to a fantasy. And in that way, he could maintain some measure of power over Lucy, some measure of control by minimalizing and trivializing her experiences, regardless of how true and real they are. Peter prompts the question, what's all this about, Ed? Said Peter. And we look to Edmund to see what he will do. Will his time in Narnia have grown within him a desire to do what is right? Will his experience breathing Narnian air have changed him for the better? Uh, and the answer comes from the following paragraph in Lewis, where Lewis says, and now we come to one of the nastiest things in the story. Up to that moment, Edmund had been feeling sick and sulky and annoyed with Lucy for being right, but he hadn't made up his mind what to do. When Peter suddenly asked him the question, he decided all at once to do the meanest and most spiteful thing he could think of. He decided to let Lucy down. And there's so much power in this short passage and so much that reveals uh, just how despairing Edmund's choice is here. And Lewis really provides the right sort of introduction and the right sort of context in which to interpret this moment from Edmund. The first uh, signal from Lewis is the opening sentence when he's, of this paragraph when he says, and now we come to one of the nastiest things in this story. And readers of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe know that there are many nasty things in the story. Uh, there is the uh, shedding of the wolf's blood by Peter. There's the brutal transformation of Narnian animals and beasts into stone by the White Witch. There's the entire, the entire Battle of Baruna at the end of the novel. And of course, also the assassination of Aslan, murdering him on the stone table. That is one of the nastiest things in Narnian history. Uh, now, of course, it's not so nasty and so damning as to not uh, make his resurrection all the more sweet. Um, but even with all those things into account, Lewis says that this moment from Edmund is one of the nastiest things in this story. And Devin Brown, who has uh, written on the Chronicles of Narnia, says this about the moment. He says, when Lewis rates Edmund's decision to hurt Lucy as being as nasty as any of the things that follow, he wants his readers to see that misdeeds, which may seem small, can carry as great a weight as those which may seem larger. And what a profound truth that is. The misdeeds, which may seem small, can carry as great a weight as those which may seem larger. This moment from Edmund, although it's small, and although, although it's subtle and seemingly insignificant, that he's merely uh, letting his sister down and... Uh, and lying to his other siblings. Yet in the grand scheme of things, Lewis seems to be a believer in the possibility that nothing is trivial. Something may appear small. Something may appear 
trifling and yet carry infinite weight. And this is the same sort of thing that Tolkien shows in the, in the Lord of the Rings, that such a seemingly small thing as a ring can cause such grand devastation. And likewise, something as seemingly small and insignificant as a hobbit can be the very thing to affect the salvation of that land, the very thing to rid the land of that great evil. Um, that there is great power in small things. One act of kindness uh, can truly change the entire course of history. Uh, Charles Dickens once said that no one is useless in this world who lightens the burden of another. No one is useless in this world who lightens the burden of another. And you know, Dickens in his works, particularly in A Christmas Carol with Tiny Tim, uh, he knows the power of small things to speak large truths. Uh, and here with Lewis, one of the nastiest things in this story, Lewis says, is this moment from Edmund where he betrays his sister. So that's the first signal from the paragraph that we see not just a slight misdeed, but a grand moment of betrayal that it follows up on a, a prior loyalty shift and a prior allegiance he had made to the White Witch. Then it says, up to that moment, Edmund had been feeling sick, sick and sulky and annoyed with Lucy for being right. This is another uh, revealing detail here that Edmund knows he's in the wrong, which might sound, straight, might sound straightforward, that he obviously has just been there. Um, it would be hard for him to think that there really was no such place as Narnia, having just encountered the White Witch and had this extended experience with her. But it's a revealing point because uh, it reminds us that great evil and betrayal and treason and despair can happen from those who know what they are doing. It reminds me of the current uh, abortion holocaust in America, uh, murdering infants, murdering fetuses, um, that those who advocate for such things are not doing so blindly, that they are aware that it is a life that they are destroying. It, they are aware that they are terminating a human being. They are just ways of deflecting themselves from that or ways of downplaying it on the altar of convenience on the altar of personal rights. It's the same sort of thing here. Edmund betrays Lucy knowing he's wrong for doing it, which prompts the question. Um, if he knows he's in the wrong, yet he betrays Lucy anyways, what are human beings willing to do and capable of doing knowing that they're in the wrong and yet wanting it so badly that they will do it anyway. Uh, the most recent example of this might have been if Edmund would have taken the Turkish delight, knowing it was enchanted, knowing it was poisonous, knowing it would create within him this unending ache uh, to taste it over and over again, would he still have grabbed it anyway, knowing it would kill him? Uh, it's quite fascinating to see the study of human nature here. But then the most important point here, what Lewis repeats three times, is that this moment for Edmund is a choice he makes. Lewis says he hadn't made up his mind what to do. When Peter asked him, he decided all at once to do the meanest and most spiteful thing. He decided to let Lucy down. So he made up his mind. He decided. He decided. Now, this is a, a matter of will and choice and action from Edmund that is meditated and deliberate. 
which makes the betrayal all the worse. Later on, Lewis says Edmund, who was becoming a nastier person every minute, thought that he had scored a great success with this lie that he tells Peter and Susan. But that's another key word here that Edmund was becoming a nastier person every minute, that he is building habits of life. He is taking steps toward a destination, aiming toward a target, that you tend to become good at what you practice. Uh, and you tend to hit what you aim at. This is the sort of thing, Doug Wilson talks about this with his phrase that you become like what you worship, uh, that he borrowed from G.K. Beale. This idea that what you set before you to become like, what you idolize, what you adore, is what you will become. And for Edmund, because he has placed himself on that throne, it ends a false throne, just as false as the White Witches is, because he's placed himself there and his own desires and his own sulkiness and his own pride, then what he will become like is the nastiest person in the room. He will become more self-involved, egocentric, self-serving, because he has formed habits of mind. He has disciplined himself in the art of self-love. Time goes on. Uh, Peter, Susan... Lucy and Edmund try not to talk about it anymore. And then they eventually go to the professor to see what there is to be done about Lucy's story. Because they genuinely, Lewis writes, they genuinely believe that Lucy might have uh, become mad. She might have uh, succumbed to some sort of mental illness. Before that, Peter uh, rebukes Edmund for being nasty. He says, you've always liked being beastly to anyone smaller than yourself. We've seen that at school before now. Uh, so you see this, um, this kind of uh, Superman complex that Edmund might have, that he must be the most powerful room in the person in the room. He must pick on those he can in order to establish his own clout and his own power, uh, which is just the classic traits of a bully. Edmund is projecting his own inadequacies and fears by picking on Lucy his own um, envy for not being the oldest. He wants to rule over Peter. We saw this in the last chapter where the White Witch said that Peter could be one of his dukes and Edmund could be the one real king of Narnia, that we are playing on Edmund's sin nature here, his envy, his pride, and so on. But also the slight uh, reference here to the way Edmund is at school. Um, we'll see this more in the silver chair when uh, Lewis talks about experiment house his um, complete um, satirical portrayal of the ills of modern schooling and modern education that Lewis had so much to disagree with. But before they go to the professor, Peter and Susan, Susan, to discover what they should think about all this, Lucy has a great declaration here about all of this. Of course, she's frustrated that Edmund is lying. He's frustrated that no one's believing her. And she says this, I don't care what you think. And I don't care what you say. You can tell the professor or you can write to mother or you can do anything you like. I know I've met a fawn in there and I wish I'd stayed there. And you are all beasts, beasts. I love this moment from Lucy where she is standing in her allegiances to her experiences of Narnia. She knows what she has tasted and what she has seen. She knows what she has experienced to be true and beautiful and compelling. 
And uh, her desire to return there at the end of her statement is revealing as well that she wishes she'd stayed there where she really is a queen, where she really does belong. Um, and she declares that she doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She's going to believe in Narnia no matter what. I can't help but thinking, speaking of the silver chair, of a similar declaration that Puddleglum, uh, the marsh wiggle, will make in the silver chair uh, in which we will get to that book later on. But there's a wonderful moment where Puddleglum and Jill and Eustace are, and Rillian are trapped in this sort of trance state that the Queen of Underland has lulled them into, this sort of enchanted stupor that she uses to try to poison their minds and manipulate them into believing that there's no such thing as Narnia, which would be above ground. They are underground at the moment. So she's trying to convince them by lying to them that there's no such thing as Narnia. It's only a figment of their imagination. And they begin to believe it over time. This potion that she's thrown into the fire and this music that she's playing is lulling them, lulling them into this false belief and numbing their faculties of, of mind and clarity down. But then Puddleglum stamps out the fire in one brave act of defiance. And he says this to the queen. And it's quite similar to what we saw with Lucy. He says, that's why I'm going to stand by the play world, what she has been calling Narnia. He says this, I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. It's this beautiful declaration of loyalty. I am going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there is no Narnia, even if no one believes me. That I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And the very problem we see with Edmund and his allegiances and his loyalties and his loves being disfigured, being uh, out of order, being inordinate, we see Lucy and later Puddleglum declaring their allegiances to be spot on. She says, I know what I have seen. I believe in Narnia, even if no one else will. And that is some bravery uh, from this youngest member of the family that really sets the tone for later acts of courage and later acts of bravery that uh, even the smallest of us are capable of grand declarations of courage, just like Edmund's small acts of betrayal are capable of great destruction. I think of Reepicheep, uh, that small but valiant mouse on the Dawn Treader, that Lewis and Tolkien both had this affinity for seeing great glory rising from seemingly insignificant places and figures. It's like in Psalm 8, uh, David says, out of the mouth of babes, you have spoken glorious things. Uh, uh, the Christmas story itself, the nativity, God revealed his plan of salvation by becoming a small, vulnerable, helpless baby. This is the way that God has declared victory, that great and glorious things come through the smallest and seemingly simplest measures. The gospel itself, the good news, is something that is received with childlike faith. About all the way back in chapter one, we saw Lucy's entrance into Narnia as a product of childlike wonder. And there's something about becoming small here with Lucy's uh, completely uh, 100% total dedication to the truth of Narnia is worthy of our admiration. But like I said, Peter and Susan uh, seek wisdom from the professor. 
Peter says it's getting beyond us, which it absolutely is. And so they go the right way, the right route to ask Professor Kirk about this, which of course, once we read The Magician's Nephew, the later book that functions as a prequel, we discover that this is Diggory Kirk, grown up. Diggory, who uh, was there when Narnia was sung into existence by Aslan. And Diggory, too, in his foolishness, uh, inadvertently invites evil into Narnia by by awakening Queen Jadis from Charn, uh, and she invades Narnia and ultimately becomes the White Witch here. So there's more to see from Professor Kirk as the story unfolds. But here, Peter and Susan tell the professor about Lucy's story and what has happened and how they're having trouble believing it. And the professor, uh, rather than do what a typical adult might do, which is to downplay a child's story if it sounds too good to be true or too fantastic and side with Peter and Susan, he does the exact opposite. And through a series of Socratic questions and this uh, Socratic discourse he establishes with Peter and Susan, he asks them penetrating questions that lead them and guide them toward the truth and the possibility, certainly, that Lucy is right and that Narnia is really there. And it's no accident that in the last battle, the very final book, uh, the professor says, bless me, it's all in Plato. It's all in Plato. What do they teach them in these schools? Which, of course, is is uh, part of Plato's entire structure is to show his mentor, Socrates, uh, preferred method for guiding his pupils toward the truth, which is asking a series of really well-poised questions and allowing the pupil to discover the truth rather than simply memorize it as mandated. So Peter and Susan ask him, he asks them questions in return. um, And it culminates, all of these questions culminate in this statement from the professor. He says, logic said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. And this is a powerful dismantling of Peter and Susan's skepticism that at first he says, well, which of your siblings is the more truthful, Lucy or Edmund? And Peter and Susan say, well, up up until recently, we would have always said that Lucy is the more truthful. And he says, well, one look at Lucy and one conversation with her proves that she is not mad. She is certainly in her right mind. And all of these questions, all these statements lead up to that Uh, moment where he tells them that logically, logically, which is fascinating itself, that the professor is responding to an allegation of a child's uh, commitment to a fantasy. And his response to that is to think logically, but it's what he does. He says, logically, there are three possibilities. Either she's lying or she is mad or she's telling the truth. And any reader of Lewis can see that this is Lewis's famous trilemma that he establishes, I believe, in mere Christianity uh, in his defense of the logic of Jesus's claims. And in that work, he says, Lewis says of Jesus, he says that there are three real possibilities with who Jesus is. Either Jesus is a liar in claiming to be the son of God, or he's a lunatic 
that he thinks he's the son of God in the same way someone else might think he's a potato, or he's Lord, that he really is the son of God and he's telling the truth. So Jesus is one of three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. That's the trilemma. There are only three ways in which we can receive the claims of Jesus. The professor here, using that same logical structure that Lewis propounded in Mere Christianity, is saying here that Lucy can only be one of three things, a liar, a lunatic, or she's telling the truth about her claims of Narnia. And that really rocks Peter, Su- Peter and Susan back on their heels, and it rocks us back on our heels. How many of us would take the claims of a child that they've been to this alternate world and met a fawn and it's seen this land where it's always winter and never Christmas. And how many of us would be willing to consider it, very carefully consider it, and to, uh, to apply the rules of logic to determine its validity? The professor here is establishing his own sense of childlike wonder. Perhaps it's true. Perhaps Lucy is worthy of being believed. And he says, a charge of lying against someone whom you've always found truthful is a very serious thing. Right? And he's calling Peter and Susan on their willingness to behave like Edmund, to think perhaps a little bit too quickly of letting their sister down, albeit inadvertently. They're not as malicious as Edmund is. But it's the same sort of rebuke. And it's one that will pop up in Prince Caspian when Lucy sees Aslan there. And Aslan beckons her to follow him and she tells her siblings and they don't believe her. Susan even accuses her of lying there, that this is a lesson that children will have to consistently learn, uh, that things are not always as they appear to be, and that perhaps the truth is more wondrous and more fantastic than we were willing to believe at first. Uh, The chapter culminates in another great moment. Uh, Lewis takes the time to tell us that the house of the professors, which even he knew so little about, was so old and famous that people from all over England used to come and ask permission to see it over. This is a pretty cryptic, uh, mysterious passage because Lewis hints at this house having all sorts of magical properties. Remember back in chapter one, Peter's statement that uh, you might find anything in a place like this, which is indeed true. They find a magic wardrobe. Um, But Lewis alludes to this mysterious property of the house, but doesn't fully expand on it. But that means there are all sorts of people touring the house and the children get caught in one of these tours where they don't want to bother the adults. They certainly don't want to bother Mrs. McCready. And so they hit it and they're on the run trying to avoid her. And of course, where do they end up? But in the wardrobe room, in the spare room with the wardrobe. So Lucy has been drawn to the wardrobe Edmund has been drawn to the wardrobe, and now all four of them will be drawn to the wardrobe. This is an irresistible call to assume their destinies. And of course, this is the entrance into the wardrobe that will stick. This is the one that will prompt the grand adventures in Narnia with the beavers and with the white witch and ultimately with Aslan himself. And in the second to last paragraph, when they're running from Mrs. McCready, There's this great statement from Lewis. And again, he repeats the phrase that they found themselves there. We've seen that all along. Lucy found herself in Narnia. Edmund found himself in the wardrobe. They just happened to be there as though they are guided and shepherded by a higher force, a higher reality. And here it says, after that, whether it was that they lost their heads, this is the four children running from the group, 
whether it was that they lost their heads or that Mrs. McCready was trying to catch them or that some magic in the house had come to life and was chasing them into Narnia. They seemed to find themselves being followed everywhere. Listen to that statement again. Whether it was that they lost their heads or that Mrs. McCready was trying to catch them or that some magic in the house had come to life and was chasing them into Narnia, they seemed to find themselves being followed everywhere. And Peter in the final paragraph says, quick, there's nowhere else. And they jump into the wardrobe. There's nowhere else. They are being chased into Narnia. They are being guided into their adventures, led into their destinies. This is so like the call of the Holy Spirit, that they are being guided and led and indeed chased into Narnia. They are being pursued, right? Remember what Aslan will say later on, that you would not have called me unless I had called to you. And in The Horse and His Boy, Aslan is depicted as chasing Shasta. Uh, The sense of Aslan as the pursuing king chasing Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy into Narnia so that they can become the kings and queens that they were always destined to be. So that concludes our look at uh, chapter five, back on this side of the door. Be sure to tune in next week as we look at chapter six, Into the Forest. Thank you for listening. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm new. That's anchor.fm new to get started.